0: Well, we can turn back to the passage we read there from Luke chapter 20. I suppose it's basic for an author to assume that his or her readers will also assume that there's a connection between everything he says. Because if there's no connection, then everything is disjointed. And if there's no connection between paragraphs, for example, then you might as well just start anywhere in the book and just read a paragraph here and then jump to somewhere else and read another paragraph if we don't think there's any connection. So as we read these incidents in the Gospel of Luke, what is the connection? We read about a question about taxes. And we read about a question about the resurrection. And both these questions were asked by the opponents of Jesus. But then we That was a question that Jesus asked about himself. And then there's the story of this widow who puts in everything she has. It is um, interesting, isn't it, that the the start of the section talks about taxes to be paid to the central government And the end of the passage talks about taxes to be paid to the temple. So Luke must have had some kind of design in mind when he said that. I suppose we could look at the four incidents and say, well, I suppose they're connected by the principles of leadership. What kind of leaders should there be? Should we be like the ones mentioned in verse 19? The scribes and the chief priests. Or like the ones mentioned in verse 27, the Sadducees. Or Jesus, the way he speaks when he asks his questions. Or the situation at the end, when the scribes are condemned for being social climbers. So it's a question of kind of leadership. So these are connecting themes that are in these four uh, incidents. Or it could all be it maybe how to behave in the temple because that's where all the incidents take place. but personally I would suggest that the actual theme that connects them all is true religion. We have to remember the time in which all this took place. There's a shadow hanging over everything. And of course the shadow that's hanging over everything is the cross. In two or three days' time, Jesus is going to be crucified. And he's going to be crucified by the some of the people that are referred to in the first incident by the Roman authorities. What will we expect somebody who's about to be crucified by them to say about them? Because he's telling his disciples how they should live. Here's Jesus coming towards the end of his life. And as we know, statements that people make in that particular time in life are normally priorities for them. God in his providence has brought about these four different incidents. And each of them gives an opportunity to Jesus to say something something about how his disciples should live. And it's interesting to to note what he says and how he says it. As we look at the incidents, the one thing that seems to come out of them all is that the only calm person is Jesus. And we would expect him to be the one person that wouldn't be calm. I mean, he knows what's round the corner for him. In 72 hours, he's going to be hanging on the cross. He knows that. And yet, here he is, and the, he's total contrast to the others, the scribes and the chief priests, were well, they're desperate to lay hands on him, because, but they're afraid of the people. They don't know what to do. The Sadducees, well, they're bothered about their lack of authority because they imagined they had authority. But Jesus, he's calm. And that's a very striking thing, isn't it? So I'd like us to look at these four incidents. Just see what they say to us. About how Jesus wants his people to live. The first one is rulers and taxation. Quite topical at the moment, isn't it? But it's always been topical. I mean, Paul deals with it in his letter to the Romans. But here's a very subtle question, isn't it? The book of Proverbs tells us to beware of the flatterers. And here's a bunch of flatterers, as we can see from verse 20. They are pretending to be sincere. I mean, flatterers, well, they're Quite often they're welcomed by people, aren't aren't they? Everybody loves to be told that what they're doing is great. The only problem that is, is in that kind of situation is that normally the recipient of the flattery doesn't know it's flattery. But Jesus is different. He knew it was flattery. He knew their, he perceived their craftiness, as it says in verse 23. But they had come up with what they regarded as a very good question. A question that would trap him. Because that's what they were trying to do. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. Rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. I mean, if they actually believed that, they would, be, they would believe everything he said, wouldn't it? But then they said, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? I mean, they knew that um, if Jesus said it wasn't uh, lawful, that Caesar would arrest him which is kind of ironic, since Caesar was going to arrest him in a couple of days' time. But anyway, that was their plan. If they get Jesus to say, no, you shouldn't pay anything to the Roman authorities, then that would be rebellion against the state. But on the other hand, they thought if he said he should pay it, And the Jews wouldn't like it. I mean the Jews wouldn't have objected to paying tax to their own um, rulers as long as they were Jews. But they would have objected to paying them to the Roman authorities. Because they were theirs. They had kept them in some kind of bondage. How did Jesus deal with this? I mean, how would we deal with it? If we, get a, if we get a question, which, as far as we can see, the only answer is going to cause us problems, then what do we do? Well, I think that the common res- response would be to say nothing. But that wasn't Jesus' response we could describe his response as striking, simple and scriptural. How is it striking? Well, he just gave an illustration. Do you think these men would ever look at a coin in the same way again? And he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? I mean, the point of an illustration, of course, is that it takes root in your mind and just stays there. And I suspect every single time any of these people touched a coin, they would remember what Jesus said. It just lodged in their minds. And of course, that is the point of an illustration. I mean, if, if we heard an illustration last week and we don't remember it, then the illustration didn't make its point. And Jesus, of course, was the master of illustration. His parables and his word pictures. And here's a very striking one, isn't it? It's actually impossible to get out of your mind. But it's also simple. Sometimes, don't know about you, but Sometimes when you listen to someone on the news and they get asked a question, and their response is to try and enlarge things, to expand it, and perhaps there's a reason behind that because they might imagine that the more they say, the more confused the questioner will be. But Jesus, he just says it as it is straightforward, simple, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And, that, as we can see, that answer floored them. And simple answers normally do that. Some people like to have a discussion And the last thing they want is the answer to be given at the start. But Jesus, he quite often gave the answer at the start. And any discussion after that was basically rebellion. He just told them straight. And that's a way to tell the truth, isn't it? Just say it. So it was striking and it was simple, no expansion whatsoever. But it was also scriptural. Unlike later on, on this occasion, he didn't quote any verse, but he just quoted what was an obvious scriptural principle. And the principle principle is, as we know, that God's people live in two kingdoms simultaneously. And it's impossible in this world to get out of that. Whenever it is, or wherever it is, they live in two kingdoms simultaneously. One of these kingdoms is the political kingdom in which they're in. And that can vary depending on where we are. The other kingdom is the kingdom of God. And it's the same whatever it is. It can be in the political kingdom, as it was in this one, that the authorities may be ungodly but their requirements were not. And that's what Jesus says, isn't it? He's basically saying to them that part of true religion is to be good citizens. Good citizens of the country. Whichever country it is. He knows as a consequence of what he's going to do on the cross that he's going to have his people throughout the world and he knows that they're going to be there down the centuries and all of them are going to have this two-dimensional state relationship to be in. They have to react to the political system in which they are and they have to live in God's kingdom at the same time. And it's obvious from Jesus' response that he expects that to be entirely possible. To render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We might assume that taxation That's got nothing to do with spirituality. But that's not what Jesus says. That leads us to the second one. Living rightly true religion means that we expect to have the supernatural power of God. And that comes out in this story that the Sadducees came along with. It's a rather ludicrous story, isn't it? But of course, they're trying to defeat Jesus with derision. What they want to do is to make him look stupid. And at the same time, to make God's word look stupid. Because although they were leaders in Israel, as we can see from verse 27, they denied that there was such a thing as a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels either. They didn't believe in the spiritual world. The only world that they believed in was the world they could see here and now. And therefore, if they could make the other world that Jesus was speaking about if they could make that look ridiculous, then they would get their way. So they came up with this story. And how does Jesus react to this story? Well, as with the previous one, where he gave a striking and a simple and a scriptural response, on this occasion to these Sadducees, he gives what we could call a straightforward Serious and surprising response. How would we have answered this story? About these seven brothers. Who had (coughs) been involved with the wife of the first brother. And so on. How did Jesus react to that story? Well we can see what he did. He just. Stated the truth. There in verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. That's life in this world. But then in verse 35 he says those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. That's life in this world described in half a sentence and life in the next world described in half a sentence. And it's just straightforward. He just says the truth. They were the Sadducees. Imagine they spoke with authority. And their authority came from their position. Jesus spoke with authority. But where did his authority come from? How did he know what to say? How did he know how to answer this question? He doesn't answer because it happens to be a conviction that he's got. Although it is a conviction that he has, but that's not why he answers it in the way he does. He answers it, of course, because he's got infallible knowledge. He can speak with certainty about life in this world and life in the next world. And he doesn't have to use a lot of words to describe either. As I mentioned a minute ago, half a sentence for this life and half a sentence for the next one. And it tells us what we need to know. So he's got a very straightforward answer. But his answer is also serious. I mean, the Sadducees in their description of the life to come are treating it with contempt. But Jesus points out to them that they have to be worthy of the life to come. They have to be regarded as worthy by somebody else. Who's going to regard them as worthy? How does one become worthy of the kingdom to come? Well, the answer to that question, of course, is it's God that regards them as worthy. But what does God include in his estimation of worthiness? Are you and I worthy of it? Everybody in Inverness worthy of it? Is anybody in Inverness worthy of it? I mean, Jesus here is suggesting, isn't he, indicating that there has to be some kind of qualification to get to the life to come. And it's got nothing whatsoever to do with how many husbands that woman had. And we should know what the answer is to be worthy. It's God that classifies the inhabitants of the world to come as worthy. And his classification of that is that we become worthy by believing in Jesus. And we know what happens when we believe in Jesus. We are justified Christ's righteousness is reckoned to our account. And we are given access into the family of God. And these things are unchangeable. And since we were given access into the family of God, we become the heirs of God. And we are joined heirs with Jesus. And that means that we're worthy. It's incredible, isn't it? We were totally unworthy before that. But by simply trusting in Jesus, we become worthy. And therefore we can look ahead to the world to come. And it doesn't become a thing of, 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 of speculation, like the way the Sadducees were asking. Jesus just told us what it's like. And what is the life of heaven like? In addition to being counted worthy, it's all about immortality. And there's nothing in this life that, that is the same as it. In the world to come, he says there in verse 36, we're going to be like angels. Not in the sense that we're invisible. Or in the sense that we have much more power than we currently have in a physical sense but because in the eternal world angels are immortal without bodies and God's people are uh, are immortal with bodies immortality is the life of the age to come and there's nothing in this life that's that's like it it's extraordinary what Jesus says to them here, isn't it? We cannot die anymore. Which, of course, when we think about that, tells us that nothing fades. Everything is perfection. Everything is beautiful as that is most beautiful. Whatever is done, do angels make mistakes? Of course they don't. And in the world to come, we're going to be, if we're Christians, we're going to be immortal. And that's the real question to consider, isn't it? Paul tells us that in Corinthians 15. For in this mortal shall I put on immortality. And to bring questions about life in this world, whatever it is, into life in the next world, the two things are not connected. So it's serious. And we are, to be, we are not to be imagining the world to come as some kind of extension of this life. The feature of the world to come is immortality. He's got something surprising to say as well, doesn't he? And he takes the Sadducees back to the incident of the burning bush. When God appeared and said to Moses, I am the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's a wonderful statement. But Jesus highlights the verb, the present tense of the verb. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for centuries when God said that to Moses. And God didn't say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Rather, he says to them, he says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses couldn't have pointed to where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. But God did. He told Moses that they were with him. I am the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. At this, that precise moment that God was looking at Moses there, dressed as a shepherd, he was also looking at Abram, Isaac, and Jacob who were perfect in holiness. And that's wonderful, isn't it? And it all depends on the tense of the verb. And the lesson is uh, we can know God's life long before the resurrection. The Sadducees question what implied that these dead believers wouldn't get anything until the resurrection. But Jesus' answer tells them that the minute they die they're in the presence of God. And that's Wonderful. And is it not amazing just how easily Jesus brought that into their minds? Straightforward. The supernatural power of God. How much life can we have at the moment? We claim to have eternal life. What does that mean? It's the life of God as somebody once put it in the soul of man. So the Sadducees well in verse 39 the scribes had to say "Eh, teacher you have spoken well. I hope we think the same. What he said In answer to that rather ludicrous story. And then there's the third one. About himself. They've given up asking questions. So he decides it's a good time to ask them a question. And he turns them to Psalm 110. The psalm that we sang a minute ago. And again, with the two, as with the two previous incidents, his statement is short uncomplicated, and, and scriptural. He just takes them to the first verse of Psalm 110 and says to them, have you noticed the word my in that verse? The Lord did say unto my Lord. David wrote that and he's basically saying in that verse that the Messiah existed when David existed the Lord said to my Lord my Lord's that's him confessing that he's the Messiah and way back there in Psalm 110 centuries before this incident took place David says he's Lord he's my Lord and yet he's going to be my son but he's going to be a son of David and he's of course he's telling them isn't he to recognize who he is They're, they're giving all these questions to him to try to show to the people that Jesus is not who he claims to be And he basically turns the table on them and says, well, who's Psalm 110 talking about? And of course, if we look at what was said in Psalm 110, and remember, in 72 hours' time, Jesus is going to be on a cross. And there he is, and he's talking about the Messiah being invited to sit at God's right hand, to be in highly exalted we know that the fulfillment of Psalm 110 verse 1 didn't occur until the ascension but Jesus is here saying to the audience although they don't realize it but he is saying to them in three days time you're going to see me going somewhere You're going to see me hanging outside the city wall. But you have to remember that's not the end of my journey. I may be going to the cross, but after the cross, I'm going to the crown. And he's just warning them and telling them. Because he speaks with authority, he doesn't just give opinions. I mean, Jesus never gave an opinion this whole earthly journey he just stated the truth and he's stating the truth here he's the one who's going to the crown he's the one that's going to be recognized as Lord and it's good for us to understand who Jesus is and to live in the light of that every day And then, briefly, this contrast to be observed. As you read about the woman, the poor widow, who throws in all that she has into the temple treasury, do you think Jesus approved of it? I mean, there's lots of sermons being said about this wonderful woman who made herself totally poor. The only problem with that kind of suggestion is that Jesus doesn't say it was wonderful. Part of our problem, of course, is where the chapter division occurs. We look at chapter 1 and we say to ourselves, Oh, something new is happening here. But if you look at the end of chapter 20 Jesus is is condemning those who mistreat widows. And here's a poor widow. And she's compelled not by God she's compelled by the temple authorities to put in everything she's got. Do you think Jesus approved of that? Did he approve of a, of a system that made a poor person even poorer? As I say, this incident has been promoted as an example of Christian discipleship. If you look at Matthew Henry, he kind of suggests it might not be. And a couple of years ago, John MacArthur caused a stir by saying it's got nothing to do whatsoever with Christian discipleship. It's actually an example of an abusive system. She had to give everything, not because God demanded it, because the system demanded it. The system was designed to benefit those who give the most. But anyway, the lesson from it is that Jesus knows what people give. He knew what this poor widow did. But he's not saying to her that she should have given it. He knew what the scribes in the previous section what they were giving, because there was thirteen huge jars in which people could throw their donations, and of course the effect of the jars was that the ones that threw in the most could make the loudest noise. And they heard the noise of those who were showing off as they gave. Jesus, well, he knows what people give. And he's got the ability to assess it. This woman, he knew that when she went home, she had nothing to live on. So I suspect he's not approving of what's going on here. But anyway, since he knows what people give, what are we to give? Because has there ever been anybody who did what this woman did? He loves a cheerful giver. As I'm sure we know, the word cheerful is a translation of the word we get hilarious from. He loves a cheery giver. Somebody who's happy to give. And Paul also tells us that people should just give what they agree to give. Nothing to do with anybody else. Just what you agree to give. That's what Paul says. And just give as you're able. That's what he says. Our God's not a hard master. But if we make this poor widow into an example, what are we saying? True religion. What's it like? Respect the government. Experience the supernatural power of God. Recognize who Jesus is and where he's going. (coughs) And don't be impressed by social climbing scribes who put into position laws that caused injustice. Shall we pray? Lord, we might think that Jesus had other things to be on his mind, as he was getting no so near the cross. But he did have time to specify how he wanted people to live. And as we think about the cross, one reason he was going there was so that people would live righteously. His instructions are all connected to that. So, help us to take lessons from these incidents, to admire his wisdom in the way he could turn trick questions and ludicrous questions, but also ask his own questions, and also to indicate that his cause. It's not one that places burdens on people. So, Lord, help us to live in the way He would want us to, for His own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing from Psalm fifty-six, and sing Psalms. Psalm 56, verses 9 to 13, the Tuna's plain word. When I call on you to help me, then my foes will turn aside. This is how I will be certain that my God is on my side. Verses 9 to
1: 13. (laughs) When I call on you to help me there, No.
0: the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all.